Welcome to the Catapulting Commission's podcast. This is the place where we discuss how to maximize performance and improve retention with today's modern sales force. Every conversation on the show has one goal in mind, and that is to catapult your commission. I'm your host, Anthony Garcia, international best-selling author, motivational speaker, and a lifelong sales enthusiast. Be sure to join me every week as we interview sales leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. We will discuss best practices and ensure that you leave motivated and inspired to take action. Now, let's enjoy today's episode. Catapulting Commissions family, what's up team? Welcome back to this week's episode. I'm your host, Anthony Garcia. So, we have gone through everything we've had in 2021. We have brought some amazing sales professionals, entrepreneurs, leadership coaches. We had social media selling. And today's guest is going to help address one of the challenges that that many salespreneurs, companies, regardless of size, face. Everyone wants to increase sales. They want to grow revenue. They want their team making higher commissional dollars, but sometimes they're lacking one fundamental part. We're going to dive into that. Now, let me tell you about our guest today. Our guest is the CEO of Business Success Factors. Now, he has three college degrees. He has been working in sales since he could possibly start working, supporting himself through college by selling music equipment to colleges and universities. Also, some of the world's biggest bands, such as Aerosmith, Boston, Billy Joel, the Eagles. He's also a veteran serving 12 years in the U.S. Army, so I'm completely humbled and honored to have him with us today just for that alone. After that, he became a top-selling sales representative for a $2 billion company, and then he took all of his experience, created his own consulting and auditing firm, and now he's traveled out of 47 of the 50 states, 14 countries, where some of his clients have included Enterprise Rent-A-Card, Nationwide, Intuit, Procter & Gamble, CBS Television. He has also served as an independent president of sales and training for companies such as Tony Robbins, Shet Holmes, and Russ Whitney. His efforts collectively generated over $500 million in sales, and his last client alone generated $3 million in new sales in five weeks. Catapulting Commission's family, let me introduce you to Doug Brown. Anthony, thank you for having me on. And if you don't mind, I'm going to take your introduction and use that going forward for everything. I appreciate that. Not a problem, buddy. Take it. Any, the next keynote, just put that voiceover, man. It'll be, you'll get the room moving. <laughs> for sure. All right, Doug. So let's talk, let's jump into this. So as the CEO of Business Success Factors, right, I can't help go, we, we do some research, I get my guests, I do some research on you, I find you on LinkedIn, and you are the most highly acclaimed sales revenue growth expert. And when I hear that, and, and I'm, it's such a treat to have you on the Catapulting Emissions podcast, we have companies who've reached out to me directly, who've reached out to people who've been on the show and said, hey, I need help growing sales. Not necessarily in the art of hand-to-hand -hand combat of here's how we teach sales, here's how to handle objections, which, which we all do, but they just want to know what's that strategy to get there. Can you talk us a little bit about that? How do, how do companies first create that vision and then execute an increase in revenue? So the, the first place they start with the vision is exactly what you just said. What is the vision? What is the truthful vision, though, not the honest vision? Right? They're, they're different. One's subjective, one is 
objective. We can measure it. That's the truth. So I think you and I, we, we were talking uh, earlier about this. It's like, you know, what are the goals of actually achieving revenue growth? What, what do they want to achieve around revenue growth? Is it they want to achieve revenue growth because they want more cash flow? Uh, they want more profitability. They want to exit the company. They want to increase the valuation of the company. You know, is it that and more, right? So what are the truthful goals that we want to accomplish and realistically in what time frame? I mean, if, and, and, you know, so once we get really clear about that, then what we have to do is assess the situation. What do we have now? What are we missing? What do we, what, what are those blind spots that might trip you up? The constraining factors, you know, all of that has to be assessed up front. And what ends up happening is from there, we can build a growth plan that actually makes sense and is achievable. So what I see a lot of companies doing, they go, well, you know what? I'm a, I don't know, pick a, I'm a $5 million company. I want to be a, a, you know, $10 million company. That's their goal, right? But then when I dig a little bit, it's really, they want to get from five to six, right? Because they're, they're not, they have this vision in their mind, like, oh, 10 is going to get me there. But in reality, what they're looking for is to increase their cash flow. So if we can get them from five to six, but increase their cash flow by increasing their profitability, let's say five or 10%, then all of a sudden they can hit their objectives that they're looking to do for the next year. doesn't mean they don't want to go to 10 million, but in what time frame, right? I mean, I had one gent say he wanted to go from a $3 million company to a $53 million company in one year. And after talking with him, I said, hey, okay, you know, that's a lot of growth. What kind of budget do you have that, you know, you're going to be able to put toward marketing? Oh, we don't have anything for that. Um, what kind of processes do you have in for the scaling of that type of growth? Um, we don't have any of that either, you know, and it's, so it's like, okay, well, let's talk about what you do have and then let's build a plan off of that. And in the reality, this gentleman was happy with another million dollars worth of growth. Um, but a lot of people get this, these visions of grandeur in their head. And I, I'm never one to say, Hey, it can't help, you know, happen. I mean, I've, I've had companies, you know, go from 48 million to 110 million in two years, you know, under, under the things that we've done. So it can happen. It just is, what are the resources and what are you committed to doing? You know, I think gaining that, that clarity up front totally paints that, that CEO or that board of directors or whoever's steering the boat to gain some true expectation. And I like how you separate it. You said there's truthful goals and there's honest goals. Uh, or yeah, truthful goals and realistic goals, right? I mean, everybody wants to grow, right? And you're kind of like, well, where do you want to be 12 months, six months versus two years? But you mentioned something as you were, as you were describing this sales growth plan. You, you discussed that there was blind spots. And I, I would anticipate that some of these blind spots, uh, many, many of my audience the listeners of the catapulting commissions might not even be able to identify them right now. Can you walk us through that blind spots of that sales growth project or the sales process in general? Oh yeah. Well, there, there's, there's a plethora of them that can, that can creep up. Right. <laughs> um, but I mean, if you take what, what ends up happening, I'll answer it this way and then give you some examples um, as per your question. The there's about 10 facets to growing sales and sales revenue. But the challenge for most companies are they're focused myopically on one, two, sometimes three. I don't find too many companies 
that are focused on eight or 10 of them, right? And, and those companies are the companies we generally look at and we go, oh, geez, they've you know, this big company or whatever. So what ends up happening a lot of times is most people focusing on something like getting new clients, right? That's their, their main driver. We got to get new clients. We got to get new clients. We got to get new clients. But the blind spot can be, okay, what are we doing about increasing the buying frequency of those existing clients that we already have? Because maybe we don't need all that many new clients to achieve our goal. What are we doing about the past clients? What are we doing about people who are dormant, people who have bought from us? Because, you know, on average, statistics say about 62% of our base will stick and about 38% will not. They'll trade off over time. But if you look back at two, three, four, five years, there are relationships just sitting there wanting to do business again, but nobody's contacting them. So it could be blind spots like that. It could be follow-up, for example. You know, the average company will follow up once, maybe twice with their client, right? Even in the prospecting stage, the average salesperson follows up once or twice. Half of people statistically don't follow up at all. But if you look at all the statistics, all the things that have been published in real life experiences from my end, on a cold lead, it may take eight to 15 tries to actually get that cold lead to actually buy from you. So the, the challenge is a lot of companies uh, in their sales teams are picking off the easy stuff and they're leaving the other stuff that will close over time, but it never closes because what ends up happening in follow-up is you're actually prepping your clients to go buy from your competitors when you're not following up. That's a blind spot. Because let's say you follow it up, you know, I, I think it's like 13% of sales teams ever follow up more than, than you know, three times, right? So those 87%, you might have a buyer who's ready to go on the fourth or fifth contact, but they've only been contacted two or three times. So and all of a sudden a competitor calls upon them. We've already prepped them with everything they need to know. So they go, yeah, you know what? I'll buy from ABC company versus XYZ company. And that's what they do. So there's a lot of different blind spots along the path. Those are just a, a several of them. And, you know, but they're blind spots. Their companies can't see them. They're on the inside. And they need an outside pair of eyes looking in going, um, guys, why do you have, uh, you know, <laughs> five wheels on your car, right? Like, what, what is the, most people have four. Oh, we didn't know we had that fifth wheel, right? <laughs> no wonder we can't turn corners like we wanted to because it's in the wrong place. So it's one of those things that, that's where the assessment process really helps out because we really can look at the people, we can look at the skills, we can look at the process and the system behind it and make sure that we can optimize anything within. You know, hearing, hearing that outside perspective looking in, it's one of those things that uh, we nobody likes originally, right? No one wants to be audited. No one wants to have that outside eyes looking in. But if I want to grow my company, if I want to scale my company to $10 million and I haven't done it yet, I probably need some help. And mm -hmm. so to hear that, that, that perspective on, on identifying those blind spots, I, I think that's something of so much value of just who is auditing the, the, the vision of the company, who's auditing the sales process. And, and specifically with this sales process, when you go on, uh, when you work with a company who comes in and says, Doug, I want you to help our company grow. 
how much of your time is spent revamping their process versus creating your own? I mean, is this something that you come with the proprietary process for them or are you revamping what they already have in place? It could be both, right? Because it's a formula more than a, than a process. Okay. So what parts of, you know, we're trying to make this delicious. I love chocolate cake. We're trying to make this delicious chocolate cake, right? But there's a few missing ingredients. Okay. Well, then we just have to change the ingredients to what, you know, grandma used to make, so to speak. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then all of a sudden the chocolate cake tastes amazing. Right. Or it could be that you have too many ingredients in the chocolate cake and that's, you know, skewing the taste to a certain place. So it could be anything within a company. Um, A lot of times what I find is that they have blind spots that have got them stuck. So I'll give you an example. And and usually, by the way, it's only usually a few different things that can, can open that up, right? I mean, I have one gentleman, he went from 5.7 million to 8.2 million in three weeks. And, and I told him not to do it because his operations couldn't handle it, <laughs> but he wanted, <laughs> but he wanted the sales idea. And I, he promised me he wouldn't implement it. And he did. And he went from 5.7 to 8.2, um, in three weeks. Uh, however, you know, his company was completely out of their mind at that point. He had, you know, operations, people threatening to, to leave, et cetera, et cetera. So, so part of the plan is timing too, right? Like, we don't want to just lay in all these growth strategies if we can't handle the deliverable on the back end because upset clients and you end up not growing as much. But I have one client in particular, the one I mentioned before, they went from 48 million to 110 million. And the one blind spot that they had, now this was a uh, company that was generating a lot of leads online. They had um, you know almost 100 salespeople. And what was happening was, <laughs> You may laugh at this, Anthony, but um, being, you know, being the, the sales guru you are, is that 62% of their incoming leads, I measured from stage zero to stage one, which is the first contact, and then from stage one to stage two, stage two to stage three, and so on. 62% of the leads coming in never made it into stage one because the salespeople weren't contacting them. Holy Wow. I would, I would, I would lose my mind if that was happening. <laughs> well, the, the crazy part is if we could get them into stage one, it was a pretty much a static rate that went into stage two. And from stage two, we could figure out the, the exact close rate that was going to happen with this company because it was just the numbers just made sense. So when I spoke to the owner and I said, Hey, I got good news. I got bad news, you know, <laughs> and he, he, he wouldn't believe me. He was like, there is no way that 62% of my leads are not being worked. It's not happening. So I took all the data, put it on his desk and said, call me when you're ready. Two days later, he called me back. said, we got to fix this problem. (laughs) So I said, okay, (laughs) you know, how do you fix it? Well, we came up with a way of fixing it. We tied compensation to the actual, you know, getting them from stage zero into stage one. We... We, uh, we, we started exposing people publicly, those who were not doing it. I mean, there was all kinds of, you know, just basic tactics to get motivation going on in the sales team. Well, you know, in the first month, it went from 62% to 
down to 25% not being followed up. And then in the second month, we even closed it more. And what happened was he started seeing this immense push in revenue because people were, were pushing it through the process that we were now measuring. So in some cases, that was revamping, for example. And uh, the, the first case going from 5.7 to 8.2 million, that was about creating something new, right, that he didn't have. So it could be either or or both. You know, yeah, I hearing that, I mean, sometimes it's just you get what you measure, right? I mean, you 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 took a program he had, 62% of the leads weren't being called. I would I would jump off a bridge if my team wasn't calling 62% of the and I shouldn't even say that because they might not be. I should probably audit myself because <laughs> as I'm saying that, I'm like, man, I'm sure there's somebody in my organization that's not doing that uh, or that that's probably in that line. But back to the point, you get what you measure. So you you put a highlight on here's the deficiency and here's how we can improve it. Other situations, you help revamp, you build an entirely new program. As you're building this sales program or this growth strategy, how much is it of hiring a top performing salesperson versus cultivating and coaching? I mean, are you saying, hey, this team doesn't, this, you know, we're cut bait on the sales team or we're bringing in a new team? I mean, how, how do you identify? Because somebody has to execute this. So we've created the strategy, but how do you identify who's going to be the guy bringing us home on this? So again, the... <laughs> <laughs> good, 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 good cover. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, again, it depends on the goals, right? So it depends on the, on the goals of what the company is looking to do, the truthful goals. So, you know, in, in one client that I had, I, I, I had to report to him, look, you know, uh, about two thirds of your sales team is going to defect over the next 60 days. <laughs> They've had it with you. Right? So, it, it, and again, the owner's like, no, that's never going to happen. I'm like, I promise you, this is what the assessment and the audit, even though you, like you said, a lot of people don't like to have this done, but it, it reveals the reality. And so he said, nope, not going to happen. Almost two months to the day, after I delivered the findings, he called me and he said, I've lost over 60% of my sales team to a competitor. And I said, let me guess their names. I told you what they were, <laughs> you know, X, Y, Z, right? Because what's happening is the, the owner was more of a dictator versus the, or dictatorial, uh, you know, type of behavior. And people were just getting fed up with that. So, in his case, what ended up happening is I ended up hiring back about two thirds of the people that left. Now, why would I do that? Well, they were already experienced. They didn't hate what they were doing. They just didn't like how they were being treated disrespectfully. So we ended up bringing those people back. Um, and one of the ways I love doing this, Anthony, is I use uh, sales specific assessments that determine the sales DNA of the individual. So when we were bringing them back, some of the people actually were in the wrong positions originally, right? They had people that were supposed to be like heavy cold callers, but these people, you know, did not handle rejection well. <laughs> so, um, so we moved them more into a client growth role or a farming role, if what people would call. So sometimes it's just adjusted and sometimes it's just clear you got to get rid of all these people and sometimes it's just one or two people within the organization you know they're top performers but they're they're really 
disruptive to the rest of the organization. And so you might have to move them down the trough a little bit or, you know, re relocate them on an island somewhere. To, and when we do those type of things, a lot of times the productivity of the actual sales team in full picks up. Um, so there's all kinds of ways of doing this, but um, you know, it, it, again, it's a co combination of sometimes hiring top performers, and, and but it depends on you know whether they where they're looking to grow to. You know, and top performers, let's just get that out on the table. They're not the easiest to find, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so if you're looking and and you know, even if you can find them, the question is, okay, if you want top performers, is that company that's actually there to recruit these top performers, they want A players. Are they an A player company? Ooh. Right? Are they set up to actually be able to retain an A player? Do they have the onboarding process? Do they have the training process? Do they have the, the ongoing coaching process do, do, is this top performer going to be walking into an operational structure that if they go and increase sales by 20 percent immediately that operations can handle the push right they're going to look at these things are they an a player company now you might be able to fool the a player to bring them in but they're not going to stay if it's not set up to be an a player so a lot of times on hiring top pro producers like this I actually have to work with the company to make sure they're set up to actually be able to handle that top producer or a team of top producers. I mean, that that's such a gut check. You I mean, everybody wants that A player, but nobody wants to admit they're not an A player company, right? As you're saying that, I just, I just can't help think of, of what the NBA has become where basketball players are leaving for like these championship caliber teams. But the reality is, I, I believe it, I've experienced it, and I'm glad you said it, is that still exists with us hiring and trying to retain or attract these t dominant people. But let's just say, let's just spin that for a second. Let's say I do have an a dominant company where I do have the structure, the comp plan, uh, the vision. I mean, everything's aligned. How do I attract and retain that a player that we've identified and what characteristics, I guess the two part question, what characteristics are you looking for when you're saying this guy's going to be, or this girl's going to be successful in this company? Oh, let me go to the, the last one first. Cause that's where we would start. Right. Mm -hmm. Again, getting truthful. What <laughs> is, what is that real description of that persona? What is the a player actually able to achieve it doesn't mean that a players for example sometimes they're looking for um you know behind uh what did i read this morning um well i'll paraphrase it you know behind every business objective there is a personal objective so what can a players expect sometimes it's not like a players if they're going to run into resistance are always you know they're going to object to that sometimes a players love that type of environment, right? Because they're like, okay, you know what? We're going to grow. We're going to show this industry. We're going to show the, the competition and they're, you know, highly competitive. So it just depends on what the goal is. Now, it, that can be anything. I mean, and so every company, when we talk about are you set up as an A player company, what is the truthful role of an A player within that company? And is it to you know, win back clients? Is it to, um, you know, go out there and just blaze a trail and, you know, start a whole new process? Is it to 
start a uh, an independent agency of top salespeople out there, right? There's all kinds of missions for A players. So we have to define though, firstly, what is an A player? Clearly in the company, because A players, when they come to the uh, process, they're gonna expect that the delivery is exactly what they were told. So once you understand that, then the part of recruiting them is okay, um, in between that and in this question, the other thing is when we are assessing a players, we have to have, just like we would lead score, we have to have a recruiting score, <laughs> right? So, and it has to be consistent across the, uh, across the base, right? So we have to have the same questions that we ask people. We have to have all of those things that we can measure those metrics against what we're looking for as the benchmark of an A player. So once we have all of that set up, then finding them, well, where do they hang out, <laughs> right? Now that yep. we have the clear persona, where do they hang out? And, and it, it may not be, you know, on major websites, um, you know, Monster is probably not going to be your best friend to find an A player. Um, so, you know, there are sales specific websites, but there might be organizations or there might be uh, places that they like to frequent, you know, um, when I worked uh, with Tony Robbins and uh, worked with Chet Holmes, we wanted A players, but we were looking for people who were highly competitive because it was a highly competitive industry in a highly competitive environment. So a lot of times we would look and say, okay, is this person an athlete? You know, we wanted discipline too. So is this person an athlete? Is this person, you know, a chess champion? You know, we would look at those traits one of the biggest mistakes I see, Anthony, in people hiring is they're in too much of a rush. Mm. So they don't step back and put in a defined process that's measurable. And so they, you know, they, they, they say, well, we got to have somebody in two or three months, right? Oh, eight players are busy, guys. <laughs> they're, you know, they, they may be open, but a lot of them have lots of opportunity already going on. They're constantly being recruited by people. Um, so, you know, are we better off taking five months and finding the right person or three months and then having that person wash out in a month or two and then hiring another one for three months and wash out for a month or two and another one? So, you know, are we going to hire four people over the year to get the right one or are we going to just be a little bit more patient and be very calculated about before we make the hiring offer? Because one of the biggest mistakes I see, Anthony, with companies in this, they hire because they like them. Yeah, they, they like them. It's like, okay, I agree that they're like a bull, but can right. they actually do the job, right? So this is why I love to use sales-specific assessments for, again, determining what the outcome is, right? Because we can objectively measure, is this or is this not? Is this person got the traits and they're trainable? or they're not trainable because they might have the traits, but they're just going to be a disruption to the company. And, you know, maybe a disruption to your clientele because they might be a little bit more abrasive than we want them to be in a certain situation. You know, they have bad doctors, bedside manner. <laughs> they might yeah. be the most brilliant doctor in the world, but then they, you know, they just upset the whole <laughs> staff and upset all the, the patients and everything else. Right. So it really comes into ideal fit and getting clear on that persona in the beginning. Hey, I wanted to take a quick minute and interrupt this episode. 
I hope you're enjoying what you have heard thus far. Have you heard the good news? The international best-selling book, Catapulting Commissions, has been named a 2021 Selling Power Magazine book recommendation. And I want to thank you, the Catapulting Commissions family. You can claim a free copy by texting hello to 661-228-8967. You can also find out more information at catapultingcommissions.com. Okay, let's get back to the show. You know, hearing you address that from the beginning, I've, 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 I don't think I've ever heard it put that way. Where I know, I know it exists because I, you know, I manage a team and I, and I've hired people, and I'm like, okay, what are my expectations? But to really craft that a person, it's almost like you're creating that avatar of who that person is before they get there. Yeah. And then once you, once you have them, yeah, they're not hanging out on Monster. Uh, a players are you're you're recruiting an A player. I, I tell anybody who's a sales manager, or sales leader. The moment you have that A player candidate in front of you, just assume there's someone else waiting to have the next conversation with them when you when they get off the Zoom call or walk out of your office. Because, you know, we've been there. I'm sure you've been there before, Doug. I've been there before. We're like, man, I have multiple companies or multiple offers. I'm going to go with where I fit best. And hearing that you uh, discredit that likability factor, not discredit, but just say, hey, that can't be the ultimate decision-making process. I love that because I... I hire people and people ask, you know, how important is the likability? Oh, I have to like you. I have to like you. But at the same time, it's not just that. I have to know that at the end of the day that you're going to get the objective done. And the reason I love a career in sales is it's incredibly black and white. The numbers are what they say they are. Your job is to hit 100% the plan, 120% the plan. 119 is not 120. 99 is not 100. It's just crystal clear. So when you delay that, you know, when you, when you have that ability to take that likability factor out. It's, it's pretty impactful. Um, and, and hearing you say, put a button on it, people rush to it. I've, I've never rushed to hire somebody except one time in my life, I was rushed to, I would say, yeah, to hire somebody it was a, it was an internal transfer. And I got kind of had my hand forced that, Hey, this guy is the absolute killer that your sales team needs. And there was no due diligence on my process. I was the direct, direct manager but that person fizzled out in four months and it was a tornado on my team. And I went back to, I went back to my VPs and, and my CEOs. And I was like, Hey guys, this is why we have to have, this is why my process takes five months, six months, because I'm vetting this person multiple times because the moment they signed a line on the name, it's a marriage, they're mine. And I can't just walk away. So Doug, as uh, as we're, we're, we're coming here on the end, I, I, I wouldn't be doing some due diligence here. I can't help but notice Win-win selling, you brought a book to market, and it's unlocking your power for profitability by resolving objections. Now, I will say this, and I'm sure you've heard it throughout times in your career. I've heard it as my time as a consultant, as my time as a sales manager, and I get a phone call with whatever the customer's objection is. And I can guarantee you, when I hear it, I'm like, dude, you're not the first or the last person that's going to call me with that. But it seems to be an issue that still exists today in 2021. Can you talk us a little bit about the win-win selling method and, and how we're handling objections? Yeah, I mean, so the, the the thing about objections that I've, so the way the book came about, Anthony, was I was looking for a really good book on objections, but not just a book that would say, okay, if you had this said to you, parrot this back. Because I noticed throughout my life, 
when I would do that, especially earlier on in my career, sometimes that would work and sometimes it would just frankly upset people. (laughs) So I wanted a book or I wanted resources on why did objections even happen? What is the human component that, uh, you know, behind this? I couldn't find anything. And that's why I wrote the book because I wrote it on the psychology and, and the philosophy behind why objections form. And, you know, back in the old days of sales, it was, we were taught to crush the objection, right? Come top down on the objection. Well, that doesn't work well today. <laughs> so, no. right. But a lot of people is still in that frame from the past, you know, even the sales training methodologies that are going on, they'll teach you to, to, to come down top down. And that was just never me. I always figured you got to help the client. You know, I, somebody told me one time, you know, sales actually in Norwegian means to serve something like that. Right. So I was like, okay. Um, so the reason I called it win-win and the reason I wrote it uh, in the capacity I did is because I wanted to give people formulas, not just tactics. And so I go back through the, the, the history of how an objection forms. They, they form in our childhood, right? We are taught by uh, whatever, mom, dad, preacher, teacher, brother, sister, whatever, right? You know, a lot of times, and I give examples in the book um, of how these things form. And so let's say that somebody grew up in an environment, for example, uh, where they were taught to negotiate at every single turn. They grew up in that type of, a, you know, uh, family. I grew up in an, uh, you know, an Italian type of family. We, you know, they were very loud and worked with their hands all the time. Um, and, but a lot of them were negotiators, right? So I grew up in the Italian Jewish side of the family and a lot of them were negotiators. So the natural propensity for somebody who grew up in that environment is to constantly negotiate because they were rewarded for negotiating the right way. But take a salesperson who grew up in that environment. That is their frame. Now they meet someone else who's a very quick decision maker, you know, in the uh, profile test that would be called a, you know, high D, right? Uh, and, and those type of tests. Director. I make a decision like this. Whack. Okay, sales closed. Guess what that salesperson's going to tend to do now that the sales close? They're going to go back and they're going to want to renegotiate. Mm. Right? So... Flip the, flip the model though. Let's say that the, the salesperson is the director type and the other person is the high negotiator. <laughs> and the high negotiator needs to negotiate, but the, the high director is going to want to close that sale quickly. Can you see how conflict can start at this point? 100%. Right? So what ends up happening is we have two frames that collide and we want the sale. So and the person on the other end might want the sale as well. But what ends up happening is personalities collide. And then inside the buyer's head, it's like, okay, I'm just, I'm uncomfortable. There's some discomfort going on here. I'm feeling something. Maybe it's fear. It's emotion that's kicking in at this point. So what do they do? They throw out an objection, right? They go, wow, your pricing's too high. Right. Right? Oh, I dealt with somebody like this before, right? Whatever it is. And now here's the crazy part. The buyer may not even know why they're actually objecting, except they feel this uncomfortable feeling. So the root of all objections is actually fear, whether it's large or small. And so what I teach people to do is address the personal need as well as the corporate objective. 
And because if we don't address the personal need, even though it's the greatest deal, and I know people listening to this have ever had this happen, it's like the price was right, the situation was right, everything was right, but they, they even had the money, but they didn't move forward. And they kept throwing out objections. Anytime you're getting that, folks, ask yourself this one question. Well, first thing, by the way, uh, first thing, breathe. <laughs> 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 because if you don't breathe and just take a moment to pause, what will end up happening is you'll try to overcome the objection. It's just our natural thing that we do. We did this as children. You know, mom, dad would say something. I don't appreciate this is happening, right? And as a child, well, mom and dad. And we just try to defend it immediately because we didn't want to get into trouble. The first is going, yeah, you're right. <laughs> right? So we, if we breathe first and then we think and we ask this question to ourselves, what could be the five top reasons this person might be saying what they're saying to me? That will interrupt the pattern of habitual behavior in the frame enough on the selling side so that we can think clearly. And now we can go, well, maybe it's this or it could be possibly this. Guess what? Now we're going to get curious, not confrontational. We're going to go back and we're going to ask questions of curiosity. It's going to get that person to open up because that's what we're looking for. Now, again, you know, the more you can get them to open up, the more they're going to self-discover what's going on on their side. And you can help them navigate to what I call the real it. What really, what is the real issue that's going on, right? And that could be the salesperson is irritating the other person on the side of the desk. Well, okay, let's get that out and let's resolve that. So it's a win-win fashion, right? So that's, I wrote the whole book around that whole premise. Um, and it's really a book on communications more than on resolving objections. So what I found, Anthony, is that people who have, uh, you know, read the book, you know, they'll comment in and they'll, they'll say, you know what, I, this was the best thing I ever read because of my kids. You know, I communicate better with my kids now, you know, because they were playing parent. The child has grown up. The child is now 18 years old and they're still trying to play parent. And the child's going, I'm an adult. <laughs> so it's a different frame. So that's what I wrote the book about. The book's been really well received and uh, I'm actually quite proud of it. Dude, well, awesome. I mean, I see great reviews on Amazon. I actually just ordered a copy myself. Winwinsellingbook.com. Do not miss that catapults and commissions family. Doug, I can't help but hear when you say, and, and I, I don't want to quote you incorrectly, so I want to ensure I'm going to look at my notes here, but the, the root of all objections is fear. And to hear you say that is so enlightening. I think Catapulting Commissions family, you need to hear that. When you reach out to either me or Doug or whoever is in your sphere of influence with an objection that you can't handle, just remember what Doug said, which is 100% accurate. The root of all objections is fear. That That's a great one. That's We're going to call that our tweetable moment for the show. So, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we are going to get that. So, Doug, as we wrap this show up, man, I, I, I appreciate you joining us. How can the Catapulting Commissions family track you down, get you to learn about you, learn about you a little bit more, uh, learn a little bit about business success factors, all the nine? Where do we where do we find you at? Well, you, you certainly can come to the website, you know, www.businesssuccessfactors.com. Um, if somebody wants to sort of self-diagnose, you know, how are they doing in marketing and sales? Uh, send me an email at Doug at businesssuccessfactors.com. Say, hey, I want the marketing and sales checklist. And I'll send that out and they can self-assess, see where they're at. Um, they can find me on LinkedIn at Doug Brown 1234 at, um, on LinkedIn. 
If that doesn't come up, just type in Doug Brown, uh, Berkeley College of Music. For some reason, Berkeley College of Music comes up every single time. I, I never graduated from Berkeley. I went to Berkeley, but uh, <laughs> all the places I graduated from, the three degrees, they don't come up. I don't know why. It's the algorithm. So, um, <laughs> And then if they want a copy of the book, please uh, you know, go to winwinsellingbook.com and pick up the book. Uh, and let me know. Send you questions. Uh, you know, we're, we're pretty open. Uh, we're, we're a boutique company, you know, uh, so we get back to people and we build relationships. Awesome. Well, Doug, I appreciate you being here. Catapulting commissions family. Doug was another phenomenal guest. Be sure to go pick up win-win selling, unlocking your abilities to, and I don't want to butcher your tagline, unlocking your power for profitability by resolving objections, win-win sales book. Uh, you will find the link for that in the show notes. Be sure to comment, go get connected, follow Doug and catapulting commissions family. I will see you next week. catapulting commissions family that does it for today's episode if you found some value please be sure to head over to itunes and leave a five-star rating don't forget to subscribe that way you're notified of new episodes if you want to see the video portion of this podcast head over to youtube and look up catapulting commissions podcast finally if you want a free copy of catapulting commissions be sure to text the word hello to 661-228-8967 Again, text the word hello to 661-228-8967. Thanks for listening to the show. I'll see you next week.